This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit candowealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On this week's episode, I'll be talking about troublesome former prime ministers, hearing about the volunteer-led organisation recovering the dead from Ukraine's front line, and discussing the rise of toddler tech. First up, the haunting of Rishi Sunak. In her cover piece for the magazine this week, our political editor, Katie Balls, says that Rishi Sunak cannot escape the ghosts of Prime Minister's past. She joins me now alongside former Chief Secretary to the Treasury and New Statesman contributor David Gork. Katie, could you start by taking us through this week's reshuffle? Do you think that this was an attempt by the Prime Minister to regain the headlines from his pesky predecessors? So... I would never want to exactly say number 10's motivations on this because I think there's always going to be a Whitehall relying at some point. But I think number 10 were pretty happy when people stopped talking about Liz Truss for a day and started talking about the Department for Science. (laughs) However, how long that lasts, I think, is up in the air. And you have an issue where Rishi Sunak ultimately is in quite a unique position in the sense he has two very recent predecessors in the House of Commons, neither plan to go anywhere anytime soon. They both have said they're going to stand in the next election. And they both, right now, have plenty to say. And it does mean that Rishi Sunak is someone who wants to slow down the pace of politics from last year. I think lots of people would agree it'd be nice if politics was slower than last year, given it's the year the Tory party um, ousted two leaders. But the, the problem is, by doing that, you do risk leaving a vacuum, um, one in which I think both Boris Johnson and Liz Truss are all too happy to fill. Well, David, actually, I'd love to get your opinion on, on Katie's point there about politics abhorring a vacuum. Do you think that the fact Rishi is more managerial or um, some might say boring in his style is encouraging these ex-leaders and their psychodramas to to dominate the headlines? Yes, I think that's part of it. I mean, clearly it seems to me that Rishi Sunak's strategy is one of kind of show, not tell. He wants to get to the point of a general election and say, look, these are the things I've done, you know, that maybe we've had too much of over-promising the sort of big ambitious talk but it not really working I actually have to demonstrate a record of doing things and it's better if anything to under promise and over deliver than vice versa but that does mean that there's not a huge amount that is coming out of the government that is terribly interesting that is filling the pages uh, he's also got the problem which is he's in a difficult electoral position you know the Tories are miles behind in the opinion polls and so there is plenty of space there. And the, the other problem he's got is that the coalition of support for the Conservative Party in 2019 was very broad, but it wasn't terribly coherent. And he can't necessarily appeal to every aspect of that coalition. And so you've got Liz Truss, who can appeal to those who are saying, come on, let's just cut taxes, that will bring us growth. You've got Boris Johnson, who is Boris Johnson, and you know lots of people want to hear about him. And you know he's very newsworthy by nature. 
And you know, there is an opportunity for those two to fill some of that space. And that must be frustrating for Sunak. But I think that is just, you know, that is one of the downsides for adopting the strategy that he has. I'd love, David, to get your thoughts on Liz Truss's appeal for growth, which she, she made again this week. Uh, you wrote a piece in The New Statesman after Truss's Telegraph op-ed saying that she is deluded as ever. Did you detect that delusion again during her interview with Katie and Fraser for the, for the Spectator this week? I mean, do you think there's even a, a glimmer of, of remorse or acknowledgement of, of mistakes on her part? Not really, no. I mean, I think she, you know, her view is, well, we could have communicated better, but you know, she doesn't really identify one of the biggest errors, I think, in communication, which was what happened the weekend after the mini-budget with, you know, the markets already very, very jittery, and, you know, the government was still briefing out that there were more tax cuts, unfunded tax cuts to come. So she's sort of, you know, she's focusing on, well, I, you know, maybe I shouldn't have gone to the UN General Assembly and focused on the messaging of the mini-budget and what have you. I'm not sure that would have necessarily helped very much. I'm not sure that she would have added that much value to that process. No, I think she, you know, she's kind of in the mindset of I was right and it's I've been let down by everybody else. You know, the the rest of the world is out of step with me. And Katie, in terms of this this appeal for growth that David mentions, do you think there's still an appetite for Liz Truss's ideas, if not for perhaps Liz Truss herself, uh, within the Tory Party? I mean, you've seen, um, which you mentioned in your cover piece, you have seen Liz Truss's unpublished growth plan, which she would have enacted in her premiership if she had not resigned. I wonder if you could tell listeners a little bit uh, about that as well. Yeah, so this was just simply a document that they would have rolled out, so an autumn of action, which is going to be the various things they would do after the mini-budget to try and kickstart growth. And it's pretty wide-ranging. I think some of the standout things in it, or potentially more controversial, could be, for example, in immigration. So one thing, which is an idea that's been floated before, is you know to omit students from the net migration figures. Um, there's also things uh, on planning, ultimately to make it easier uh, for developments, something that which clearly would have caused a problem with uh, many Tory MPs, particularly Blue Wall Tories. But I think you can always break down these things in the sense we've seen how divided the Tory party is on planning, but there will be a group who will be very pro this. And I think that when it comes to Liz Truss, no one is suggesting, including Liz Truss herself, that she is about to make a comeback and go for leader again. She's ruled that out in her interview with The Spectator and also her Tory party would not, <laughs> I think, even entertain the idea. I actually don't think even the most hardcore Liz Truss supporters, when you speak to them, say that would be a good idea. But there is still a school of thought that thinks that it should not be the case, despite the fact the way the Liz Trust Premiership ended, that growth is now something which no longer reflects low taxes or a free market push, a slimmed-down state, and therefore there will be a push for that. And I think that's where she could, she could have some effect. Now, is this a mainstream movement? I think that there are obviously the most hardcore figures. So I think the Conservative Growth Group, which is made of about you know, 40 Tory MPs, they will say they are not a trustite group, but that's probably the closest you're going to get to some of the ideas we saw under the trust government. Um, but I didn't, do think there's a there's a wider pool of MPs who, if you look at the MPs who backed Liz Trust to begin with, lots of them didn't back Rishi Sunak because they thought he was a bit managerial. They, they thought it was a managed decline type pitch. It wasn't particularly inspiring. And I think there is a worry now that because of the circumstance of how Liz Trust premiership ended, that. Lots of these things that uh, some MPs would really like to see, almost 
number 10 might just completely dismiss. And I think that is dangerous for Rishi Sunak if he doesn't give these people enough hope or sense that he is listening to them. Um, so that's why I think this trust does pose a problem to Rishi Sunak, not in a leadership way at all, but just in the sense of there is a Tory party that looks at the polls and thinks, well, we're 20 points behind anyway, and I'm not really sure what we stand for. And that's part of the reason she did so well in the summer leadership contest. Um, you look at the fact it was his return to first principles. And that is different than the Boris Johnson threat, but it still just adds to this um, problem that Rishi Sunak has when he tries to tell people patience and to wait and the public aren't idiots when it comes to tax cuts. Well, speaking of the Boris Johnson threat, I, we, let's move on to him. David, you famously quit government after Boris became the Tory party leader. Surely he can't really be gearing up for a political resurgence, at least not not yet, do you think? Well, I wouldn't entirely dismiss it. I mean, you're, you're right to say you know, not, not straight away. And, you know, this might be something, well, certainly not before the local elections. Personally, I think it'll, if there is a move, it'll be much later than that. But the Conservative Party has been in the position before where it appears to be heading towards election defeat. Quite a few people have their doubts about Boris Johnson, but in the end decide to hold their nose and support him. And I was there when this happened in 2019. And you know, if the Conservative Party appears to be heading towards certain defeat and Boris Johnson is kind of up for it, I don't think it's completely impossible. I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not an enthusiast about the prospect, but I don't think it's completely impossible that he'll decide to have another go. After all, you know, over 100 Conservative MPs were willing to support him in October after he'd, only, you know, he'd left Downing Street a few weeks before and still had the Privileges Committee report over Partygate hanging over him. That still remains a problem. But, you know, who knows, by the by the autumn, this may have been put behind him. And, uh, yeah, he's he's got a fairly unquenchable appetite for power. So, so no, I, I don't completely dismiss it. And I suppose he could say, couldn't he, to, to Tory backbenchers, you know, when I was in office, even at the kind of lowest point in the polls, it's about sort of 10 or so points behind, which isn't totally unusual for a governing party in, in, in the middle of its term, in the middle of Parliament. And now you're sort of 20, 25 points behind. I mean, it's you can see, you can imagine backbenchers getting behind that message. I yeah, think. You, can, you can hear that argument being made. I mean, to be fair, the economic circumstances have got a lot worse. Mm. Um, that Boris Johnson was not particularly popular by any means as prime minister by the time he went. But you can see that argument. You can see the argument that he is the only one who could possibly hold on to the red wall uh, and so on and so on. Yeah, as I say, I'm I'm not an enthusiast for it. Uh, I think there are some real sort of weaknesses there. I think it would be very, very bad news for the Conservative Party and, for example, the Home Counties to go back to Boris Johnson. You know, I think it, I think there would be real problems with the Blue Wall, and personally, I think the Red Wall may be beyond saving this time round anyway. But you know, I'm not I'm, I'm not his target <laughs> person here. And, you know, a desperate Conservative Party has turned to him in the past and they might turn to him again in the future. I think, I mean, you can already hear whispers of it amongst um, MPs. I'd say, I'd say it's still the usual suspects. I think that what we've probably moved from, I would say, in the past week or so is at the beginning of the year, there is lots of Boris Johnson comeback talk. And I, and I found it a little bit frustrating, some of the anonymous quotes, because I would just love... And I love an anonymous quote, but I would love to say when they speak to an anonymous Tory MP who's backing Boris Johnson, where they back them 
in the second leadership contest? You know, is is it someone who was in that 100 or even that public number that came out who is still backing Boris Johnson to return? Because what set Boris Johnson back when he thought about coming back in the early autumn and going against Rishi Sunak was actually lots of his supporters, and I would say probably the supporters who are viewed as the the more sensible supporters and were saying, don't come back, this is the wrong time. If that group of, uh, you know, MPs or former colleagues are saying he should come back, I will pay it a bit more attention. If it is more likely Nadine Doris saying he should come back, that to me doesn't really move the dial. I would say in the past week or so, probably a few more of the very much Boris Johnson supporters, but people who I think are, you know, not, I suppose, in the, in the top tier of Boris Johnson fan base have said, well, if the polls aren't moving at all, maybe we need to think about whether Boris Johnson's the only thing that could fix it. So it's a tiny shift. I don't think we're there yet. I think, what's, I think there is a potential with bad local elections that that movement grows. But I think what is very clear is there is a risk of it. But more than that, ultimately, Rishi Sunak's Boris Johnson problem is already here. It's the fact that Boris Johnson makes an intervention on Ukraine Further than Boris Johnson when it's Prime Minister. So yeah. you look at, you know, fighter jets or NATO membership, and it just puts pressure on number 10. It means that Rishi Sunak looks as though he is not going as far. And also Boris Johnson gets all the media attention. So it goes back to the sense that, uh, you know, and if Boris Johnson speaks about the Northern Ireland Protocol, that's a really big concern in number 10, that you could have an intervention whereby Boris Johnson could turn around and say, you know, despite the fact I signed this deal, <laughs> I, I think we are selling out. And that would have a massive impact impact from the Tory party you could have someone like Liz Truss say that too and I think therefore we we are seeing the Boris Johnson problem already without even getting to a comeback. David just finally you mentioned earlier how the economic circumstances have changed for the country since the Johnson premiership and I'd just love to get your opinion as a former chief secretary to the treasury on the upcoming spring budget and what you would like to see in it uh, given particularly the not very optimistic forecasts for growth for example, for this country for the rest of the year and and what you would like to see to try and turn around this country's fortunes? I think it's a really tough one, the March budget. Uh, I think growth this year may be better than the OBR forecast in November, but the outlook for future years could easily be downgraded. And that's really what matters as far as the fiscal situation is concerned. Look, fundamentally, I think the judgment of Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt that you have got to have market credibility is right. That does have to be the priority. So I don't think there is scope for big tax cuts. If they were brave enough, you could make the tax system more pro-business and more pro-growth. So I'm not a great enthusiast of putting up corporation tax rates, but that's what they're doing. And the alternatives in terms of raising serious sums of revenue are going to be even less popular, including with Conservative MPs. You know, you're having to look at national insurance contributions or income tax or VAT. I don't think there's you know huge scope that they can take more money out of the public services because I think that would be electorally very damaging. And as it is, they're reducing public sector pay in real terms very significantly. So I just don't think there's a big pot of money there on spending. So I think they still have to be pretty cautious. The bits, if you want a growth plan, if they want to be brave, it's actually some of the stuff that is, you know, as Katie referred to, it's on things like immigration. It's on things like planning and... I'd say what would also help would be to sort of calm the temperature with the European Union and, uh, you know, 
sort out the Northern Ireland Protocol issue, uh, so there's no threat of a trade war, uh, abandon this silly idea that you can deal with all the retained EU law in the course of 2023 in a sensible way. That's just creating business uncertainty. And if you want to be really ambitious, you could look at um, a, a much more sensible arrangement with the European Union that removes some of the frictions with our trade. But that, of course, would be politically impossible. Well, David and Katie, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Next, for the magazine this week, journalist Julius Strauss recounts his time with the Black Tulip, a volunteer-led humanitarian group who recover fallen soldiers from the front lines in Ukraine. He joins me now alongside Mark McKinnon, senior international correspondent for The Globe and Mail in Canada, who has also spent time with the Black Tulip. Julius, Please, could you give our listeners a bit of background on the organisation? Um, yes, a little bit. I mean, the concept, obviously, you know, every country has a way of memorialising its dead, of recovering its bodies, of looking after foreign cemeteries and that sort of thing. But in that part of the world, it's particularly strong, I think, that tradition. The first time I became aware of Black Tulip as an organisation, obviously something I didn't experience personally, was when the Soviets were taking the dead bodies, their own dead bodies, out of Afghanistan. And um, the cargo planes that were taking out the bodies became known, uh, they were one of the Antonov model, I forget which one, one uh, maybe the Antonov 12, and they became known as black tulips. And they were immortalized in sort of Soviet and later Russian folklore because there was a very famous song written about them by a singer called Sergei Rosenbaum, I think his name was, Rosenbaum. And that's a song that's still sung in kind of sort of drunk, you know, army evenings, certainly in Russia, probably not in Ukraine anymore. So there's that sort of tradition there. In terms of meeting up with the Black Tulip organization in Ukraine, that was thanks to my colleague Mark here, who took me along on a reporting trip. Well, Mark, how did you get to know about the Black Tulip in Ukraine and to get in touch with them? Um, so I first met uh, Alexei Yukov, who's the founder of Black Tulip, almost a year ago. It was last summer. And uh, I was doing a story about the city of Slovyansk, which is in Ukrainian-controlled part of Donbass, but very much you know, the next potential front line back then and, and again now. I was talking to people about their, their experiences back in 2014 when Russian-backed militias had taken over the city of Slovyansk very briefly. And uh, Mr. Yukov had at one point been in a basement in uh, Slovyansk, taken prisoner by the Donetsk People's Republic, the so-called Donetsk People's Republic, and uh, was facing, he thought, execution when one of the militiamen sort of recognized him as being part of this organization that had even then been going in between the two front lines between uh, the Ukrainian army and the Donetsk uh, militia and retrieving the dead. And so he was sort of spared back then. And, and so I was just at that point collecting testimonies of what had happened in 2014. And it was just such an interesting field. He told me he'd gotten into it in his father's footsteps. They'd begun looking for bodies of, of Soviet and uh, Nazi soldiers who had never been recovered from the Second World War. And he just carried carried this on. And so here we were, as the war got more and more intense and the fighting in Don, and Donbass picked up again, Julius and I decided to spend a day with them. And I wonder what kind of, of men are drawn to helping Black Tulip? Are they those who are too young or, or too old to fight on the front line but still want to help with the war effort? Or, I mean, how, how do they get 
drawn into it typically. So Mr. Yukov, as I said, he was he went in with his father, he followed his father's footsteps. And then a lot of the other people that were out there the day that we were there, there were six in total, they all seemed to coalesce around a, a, a Mai Tai, the fighting club that Mr. Yukov was their teacher. And a lot of these younger folks just sort of followed, called Mr. Yukov their commander. How they stay out of you know military service, I don't know, but I imagine there's some you know, that they're, they're a well-known organization at this point. And, and one of the young men that uh, Julius and I talked to was, was saying, you know, everybody has their role in this war, and, and I guess I found mine. And Julius, how dangerous is this job? I mean, you mentioned in the piece that they're going, they're obviously going across active war zones, but also that the bodies are sometimes booby-trapped. So it doesn't seem to me like it is a, a easy job by any means. No, I mean, I don't think it's a cop-out in terms of avoiding military service or anything like that. I mean, we arrived at the scene, we were a little bit late, a little bit rushed, and we arrived without any sort of proper introduction, really. I mean, we said hello, shook hands, and that was about it. And then we set off across the fields, and one thing that became apparent very, very quickly is there were lots and lots of mines around. We could see the mines. There were anti-tank mines, and there were also anti-personnel mines. So on the way out, we sort of trusted the team, the Black Tulip. They were moving quite quickly, and we followed them, basically, and we followed them quite precisely along a line. And later in the day, we saw many more mines. You know, so one of my immediate concerns was obviously the mines. And at, at one point, I turned around to one of them and I said, how many people have you lost? And they said, actually, we haven't lost anybody in two years. So at that point, they'd had a pretty good record. That said, you know, it's a war. It's a battlefield. So the normal sort of health and safety rules don't apply. Everybody's taking a risk all the time. And I think that they just felt that that was the appropriate way of behaving. But, of course, it can go wrong. Well, yes, I, I wonder if you could, you could tell our listeners uh, a little bit about, about that. I mean, you write about it in your piece, but uh, for those who haven't, haven't read it yet, I wonder if you could tell them about how it, how it did go wrong. Yeah, I mean, as Mark said, there were six people that day, and there was Mark and I, and there were a couple of other journalists, um, one of them who was working with us. And we talked to the various six people and none of them were particularly they didn't particularly want to talk but they weren't particularly secretive either if you asked them a question they'd answer freely and easily but none of them was sort of standing up and really talking a lot and there was a, a young guy called Dennis with a with a very distinctive black baseball cap we talked to him about three or four times over the course of the day he was the one that Mark mentioned who said you know everybody's got this place his place or her place I guess possibly in this war and you know, and this is my place. And at one point, uh, later, in uh, when we were at the second Russian body, when we were picking up the second Russian body, he was sitting on a on an armored personnel carrier, and one of the the the, the lead guy, Alexei, was doing the work, sort of looking for the body inside the armored personnel carrier. And I said to him, "Doesn't the smell bother you? Because I know from my time in war zones that." the smell is bad in the summer. The smell around dead bodies is bad, especially when they've been there for a while. And there was almost no smell on this occasion. There was a little bit from the first body. It was about zero degrees. It wasn't super cold. And he said, no, no, the smell doesn't bother me anymore. It's the bullets that bother me. It's when they start shooting at us. That's what bothers me. And it was a strange thing to hear from a 21-year-old. And I think, you know, one of the reasons... If you've had children or if you have children who are that age or close to that age, you think, God, they're kids. You know, these people are still kids. They're, they're not very old. And so it was a little bit strange to hear that. And then a few days later, a few days after we left, that very same young man, Dennis, um, was killed. And he was in a van and it drove over an anti-tank mine. He was with the team. And... Um, 
with just bad luck. He drove he drove slightly over the off the side of the road to turn the van around. Mark was just explaining to me some of the details as we were walking here, which I hadn't known all the details, and just bad luck, hit an anti-tank mine and he was killed. So unfortunately their two-year record disappeared and, and it's illustrative of how dangerous these things are. Mark, as Julius says in, in, in his piece, for every Ukrainian soldier that's identified, there are usually two Russian soldiers found. From what you witnessed of Black Tulip, are the Russian bodies treated with the same process or the same care, I suppose, as the Ukrainian ones? While we were there, we only saw dead Russians being recovered, so it's hard to make a direct comparison. But what I wrote in in the piece that I put in the Globe and Mail in Canada was that the bodies were treated respectfully, except for the fact, except for what they said the whole time, right? So the bodies were being placed carefully on a plastic bag, all their items beside it, and they're being photographed because the end goal here is to send this evidence to the Russian side, get them to acknowledge that they lost a soldier with this DNA in this area, and then that's the genesis of a trade for Ukrainian bodies that have been found on the other side of the front line. I mean, we were speaking again with, with the team, the Black Tulip, and they were... Uh, one of them said, this is this is like a stain. I want to see it removed from my country, this Russian soldier. And, and they were making some jokes. One of them had a... Uh, a cigarette pack and, and, a, and a lighter that were lying beside him on the plastic mat. Uh, this is this body's entirely decomposed, so this is really all you know about this guy is that he smoked, uh, and he was in, a member of the Rosgvardia Internal Affairs Unit. And it said, um, "My soul wants romance, but my uh, my ass is looking for adventure." And they all sort of had a chuckle and said, "Looks like you found it." So, you know, there was that level of the, you know they they were not affectionate or, or respectful towards the soldiers, but they did their job very professionally because they see this as helping bring back one of their own lost compatriots. Well, then, did did that cooperation, I suppose, between the sides when it comes to retrieving war dead, did that surprise you, considering, as you've just described it, this kind of obvious and <laughs> palpable contempt for the, the Russians? What surprised me, I think, is when I met with Mr. Yukov the first time back last summer, they were still able to retrieve the dead from sort of a grey area between the front lines. And uh, what he said this time, we asked, you know, part of the reason I wanted to go see him was to get a sense of how bad the fighting was around Bakhmut. And uh, he said he can't get anywhere near Bakhmut because the Russians won't hold fire even for the bodies to be recovered. So that told us something about the ferocity of this phase of the war. That said, when they do recover bodies, there there are these exchanges at the front. There have been several, and, and each time hundreds of bodies go back and forth, which tells you that even in, in a war, there are these sort of ways that uh, opposing countries continue to deal with each other. And finally, Julius, I, I wanted to pick up something that you... You wrote in your one of your recent Substack posts for your excellent Substack, which all our listeners should should subscribe to. And you wrote that while war is reported in, in dramatic highlights, you know, tanks firing on the front lines and so on, that the day to day is even quite humdrum. And uh, I wondered if you, that's the sort of sense you got from working with Black Tulip, the sort of this this group of guys who are just getting on with the job. It's exactly the sense, and. Inevitably, our job as journalists is to sort of pick up on the special and the outstanding and the things that catch people's attention. But I think one thing that's always struck me about war is that once it settles into a certain pattern, and it usually does, unless it's a very, very short war, life goes on within that war zone. And when I say life goes on, I don't just mean people are going out and buying bread. People are doing things to support the war effort. Volunteers are running in and out of towns on a daily basis. That's another story I did with um, with Mark here. 
And, you know, we went in once. We had our flat jackets on and our helmets, and we certainly probably had elevated heart rates at some point. And you talk to them, they're like, we do this every day, Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, this is what we do. And it felt the same with, um, with Black Tulip. This is their job. This is what they do. No complaining. Obviously, they're taking... They've taken a loss, and most people who do this kind of thing are going to take losses at some point. And it becomes a sort of background to a war. And in that sense, calling it humdrum is, seems unfair in a, in a certain way because it's so exceptional to us. But for them, it's not. It's their day-to-day. Well, Julius and Mark, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you. Finally, Olivia Potts, The Spectator's vintage chef, writes about the rise of nursery apps which effectively allow parents to spy on their children while they're at nursery. She joins me now alongside The Spectator's executive editor, Laura Prendergast. Liv, just to start with, could you take us through exactly what this toddler tech does? Okay, so the app is effectively a live stream of what is happening to your child at nursery in the form of of little photographs or updates that will tell you when they have eaten or what they've eaten and how much they have eaten, when they have been to the loo or tried to go to the loo, did they wash their hands, how long they've napped for, how successful the nap was, and they, they come through to your phone in real time. And the idea is that you have a complete picture of what of what your little one is doing during the day and, and what their routine is like, and, and therefore, presumably, what kind of mood they're going to be in when they get home. Yeah. And how frequent are these updates? I mean, how many, on average, would you get a day? So my, my, the app that my nursery uses is pretty low-key. So we would get a handful during the day. But I have, I have friends with children the same age at, at sort of similar nurseries that use different apps where you are getting, you know, dozens a day and every every time your child attempts to use a potty you're going to be notified about it and then every time they wash their hands afterwards you're going to be notified about that and also children of, of a young age eat a thousand times a day like the number of snacks that they are given during their nursery day I mean it is a wonder that anyone with one of these apps gets any work done given the number of notifications that come through do you end up then by seeing it kind of laid out in this <laughs> crude data in a way, like the amount of times they eat a day, does it give you a different sort of perspective on on your child in that way? Like you sort of see it from a different angle? What my husband and I always say is, and I don't think we are alone in this phenomenon, how does he eat so well at nursery when he's a little pain about it at home you know every time we get updates of of what he's eaten he's eaten all all is always ticked sometimes times two times two lunch times two all (laughs) all all and I you know I've sat at home with this child and tried to persuade him to eat some pesto pasta and had absolutely no joy so it basically makes me think that I have something of a Jekyll and Hyde child but I think I I think that is just just the wonder of having a child in nursery and Lara I understand that you've had experience with these apps as well for, for your children and when what what do you make of them how often do you find yourself checking the app well so our, our daughter lily is in nursery and um when we joined the nursery we, we we sort of automatically signed up to the app and at first i was quite cynical about it all thinking i don't really want to know what she's eating or how many nappy changes i've got other things to think about but i've sort of become weirdly addicted to, to the app <laughs> and find it when i'm at work i find it sort of weirdly comforting knowing what she's up to it's a bit like having a Tamagotchi, I think, sometimes. You sort of look at it and you think, 
it's similar in many ways. Um, I actually really like it in certain ways. It's it's helpful to know, for, for instance, she was doing these really long sleeps at nursery and then coming home and really awake in the evening. So we asked the nursery if she, if she could maybe have a slightly shorter sleep and that seems to have helped. It's been quite helpful for learning about who her friends are at nursery um, and just kind of keeping an eye on, on what's going on with her eating and that kind of thing. There are moments when I think I really do not need to know, you know, that she's washed her hands. But I think in general, I think it's also, as much as it is something for updating us on what she's eaten and all those sorts of things, it's also the way that the nursery communicates with us. So we don't we don't really, I mean, I do obviously email them occasionally, but generally you communicate through the app and they'll let us know certain things through the app, you know, things that are happening at the nursery and that sort of thing. So I suppose it's just the kind of inevitable next step that this is where the tech's gone and... And obviously parents are now using it. I think just having become incredibly sentimental having a child, it's your first glimpse into seeing them having their own lives. You know, you spend their their very early months and possibly years, depending on when you send your child to nursery, where you are with them 24 hours of the day. And suddenly you're there not and you get this kind of pull into into what they're doing when you're not there and them sort of interacting with other children and with other adults and, and playing. And there's something... Very bittersweet about that, but being able to yeah to have a glimpse of it is is quite lovely. Yeah, and, and we actually my favourite bit of the app really is so I, I don't get notifications all the time, but I get a notification when there's a new photo that's uploaded, and we get these hilarious photos where I think yesterday they were they'd created an ambulance and were kind of carrying off dolls on stretchers, <laughs> and, and so I find all of that aspect of it quite fun, and you know it's quite nice to get a glimpse into what they're doing. She obviously has no idea that we can see all of this stuff. If she was a bit older and she somehow knew that we were spying on her, I think I'd find that a bit uncomfortable. But, you know, it means also at the end of the day, I can say, Lily, what what did you do today? And if she doesn't really sort of want to talk about it, I can kind of slightly prize out from her, you know, did you do something with an ambulance? And then she goes, oh, yes, yeah, yeah. How so did you that's, know? That's quite helpful. Do you, ever find, do you find a sense of, a slight sense of longing as a parent if you get these these updates and these pictures of things that they're getting up to I mean I I, I don't have a sort of app for the, the school and nursery that, that my kids go to it would make me I think if I did have the app I would feel a little bit I would have a little bit of a sense of longing checking it do you do you get that sense at all I sometimes I'm also quite pleased that other people are doing, doing yeah. these activities <laughs> with them as well because I'm not quite sure I'd be sort of building you know a space rocket and then an ambulance the following day and all the all the fun things that they get up to there yeah I, I think I, I think I feel the same I I feel sad that I'm not with him, but also I know that I'm absolutely dreadful at messy play and the the fantastic women that work with him have endless patience for it. Because mine is quite low-key, we have days where we don't get any updates, so I haven't had any today, and I feel I, I, I feel like, you know, I'm not being texted back by my baby. There's there's no updates from him, like, what's going on? Is he too busy for me? What's Why, why aren't I hearing from him? But it's also, as well as having this app, we've, we've got a three-month-year-old baby as well, and it's quite noticeable that there are so many apps that you can now have, like our cot, for instance, has got an app that updates us on how much the baby's been sleeping. And there are obviously apps where you can kind of watch your baby. And, and it is, I don't know, it's sort of, I mean, it is really helpful, but also I think it can sort of make you perhaps a bit more neurotic because you're constantly checking these apps and wondering if there's stuff that you can change. Whereas I suppose in days gone by, no one really had access to all of this information and they're maybe a bit more relaxed about it. I don't know. Well, yes, I was going. Uh, that's what I was about to to ask. Actually, is that Liv? You suggest in your piece that you think that when it comes to a kind of nursery cam, i.e., the 
a live stream, an actual live stream where you could watch mm. like like a sort of CCTV footage, what's going on in the nursery, that, that for you that is a sort of step too far. Uh, I wonder if you could explain why that is. And, it, and do you see that as a sort of, um, as an extension of what, what Lara just mentioned, the kind of possibility that, that for some parents, this kind of technology could lead to more neurotic behaviour? Yeah, I think I do think that it, there is a real possibility for neuroticism. The way the nursery cam system works, or the way that the one that my nursery uses works, is that you, as a parent, can log on for any 15 minutes during the day that isn't nap time or pick-up time, but only for 15 minutes. And it felt to me like seeing that a sort of random snapshot of your child's day and not being able to see it in greater context was something that would just make me nervous in a way that actually trusting the people who look after him as I clearly do otherwise I wouldn't be sending him to that nursery and entrusting entrusting him to them is a far a far more practical and and healthy way of dealing with it and I also I I do feel a little bit weird about it from the staff's point of view I, I do trust them and I don't like the idea of them being watched all the time I I think that there is I wouldn't want to be watched all the time while I'm working and that's not because I'm doing anything wrong it's just because I'm a human being and having CCTV on me all the time is a weird thing and I I sort of try to afford them the same level of trust even though that option's open to me also I did lose my password really early doors so it would be really (laughs) difficult for me to get in there (laughs) well actually on the subject on the subject of the staff I wonder if even with the sort of uh, update app as opposed to the the live stream I mean I wonder if it's more difficult for staff members having to many times throughout the day update the app for quite a lot of children presumably you know because it's not just yeah, your child I've, be- I've actually often thought that I must add quite a lot of extra work and we as yeah. well as getting all these updates of what they're eating and nappy changes we also get the photos and then we sometimes get written descriptions of what they've been up to so and occasionally they're quite long as well so it'll say something you know, Lily's gone out to the playground and she did this and she did that so I feel like it must be for all of the children it must be quite a lot of work for them to do that but as Liv says I mean again like the, the app is not not there really, I think, because I don't trust the, the, the people. I trust them completely. I think they're probably doing a better job than my husband and me, really. <laughs> but, the, um, it's, but I suppose that they must feel that they're being watched and maybe that is a slightly strange situation for them to be in. And I suppose that's, that's kind of where we are in the 21st century, though, isn't it? Yes. Well, Liv and Lara, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of The Spectator to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore, and I hope you'll join me again next week. <laughs>